This is HEC Media. The views and opinions expressed in the following program do not reflect the views or opinions of HEC or this station. Today we go to the circus, a crap game, Oxford, Australia, coffee clutches, and a dog park. We hear a very old opera, a very new opera, and a great pianist. Hi, I'm Bob Wilcox. And I'm Jerry Kowarski. Come with us to the theater and we'll tell you what we've seen from our two seats on the aisle. Welcome to Two on the Aisle, the podcast, produced by HEC Media in St. Louis, Missouri. Two on the Aisle, the podcast, is an audio version of the televised and webcast program produced every two weeks that features a review of theater and opera productions around the St. Louis area, along with a calendar of theater due to play around the region. The regular hosts of the program, Bob Wilcox and Jerry Kowarski, have been hosting and reviewing all over town for more than 25 years on local cable and more recently on the internet. This podcast is from episode number 530 of the program, originally broadcast on Thursday, June 20th, 2019, and features reviews of the following shows. Fire Shut Up In My Bones by Terrence Blanchard at Opera Theater of St. Louis, The Caper in Aisle 6 at Circus Flora, The Boy From Oz at Stage of St. Louis, Sylvia at Stray Dog Theater, The Coronation of Popea also at Opera Theater of St. Louis, Guys and Dolls in Forest Park at the Muni, Lewis and Tolkien of Wardrobes and Rings at the Playhouse at Westport Plaza, Next to Normal, the Thelonious Monk story at A Call to Conscious and Jazz St. Louis, and Fat at Because Why Not Theater Company. Now to start our reviews for this episode, here's Jerry Kowarski. When Opera Theater of St. Louis commissions new works, it wants to expand not only the repertory, but also the audience for opera. If it is to remain a living art form, our expectations of what opera can be need to widen. The future of opera seemed particularly bright after the world premiere of Fire Shut Up In My Bones. The haunting score is by Terence Blanchard, the prolific jazz musician and composer of more than 40 film scores and an earlier opera champion for opera theater. The strikingly dramatic and poetic libretto is by Casey Lemons, the acclaimed director of Yves Bayou and other films. The source of the libretto is the memoir, also named Fire Shut Up in My Bones, by New York Times op-ed columnist Charles M. Blow. The title refers to the long hidden rage that has erupted in 20-year-old Charles at the start of the opera. In the opening scene, he is speeding down a back road toward his home in Louisiana with revenge on his mind and a gun in his hand. Devone Tyne's portrayal of Charles is totally convincing and deeply moving throughout. Before he can carry out his plan, Charles is joined by Destiny, who personifies the impulses at work in Charles' mind. Julia Bullock's singing has exceptional beauty and emotional power in her portrayal of this symbolic character. Bullock shines also as loneliness, another symbolic character, and Greta, a catalytic figure in the unleashing of Charles' fury. Destiny watches with Charles as he relives key moments in his life. Seven-year-old Charles' baby is a boy of peculiar grace who is starved for affection in a family with four older brothers, a mother who supports the family by working in a chicken processing plant, and a philandering father. Charles' mother and father are brought vividly to life by Karen Slack as Billy and Chasman Williams Ali as Spinner. Charles' baby's loneliness makes him an easy target for a predatory relative. 
The depiction of childhood sexual abuse at the end of Act One has excellent performances by Jeremy Dennis as young Charles and Markel Reed as Chester. The scene conveys the emotional trauma of the incident without being too explicit. James Robinson's stage direction is ideally attuned to the story in Lemon's libretto, which is a remarkable compression of events leading up to and following the abuse. Alan Moyer's scenic design is a flexible canvas for Greg Emeta's projections, James Schutte's costumes, Christopher Acklin's lighting, and Sean Curran's choreography. The St. Louis Symphony performs beautifully under William Long, as does the chorus under Kerry John Franklin. The fine diction, coached by Erie Mills, enhances the immediacy of a compelling new work. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'd like to hear it again, I think, to get more of the music. Uh, the story is uh, a little different from so many of the stories about child abuse that we're getting, so I appreciated that. Uh, but uh, let's hear some of this music. Circus Flora has returned to the now semi-permanent Big Tent east of Grand. It's a grand show, an astounding and thrilling demonstration of all the amazing things the human body can do. As usual, Flora has a story to link the acts, but you may have trouble grasping the full import of the story unless you happen to find the program near the end of the program booklet that lists the acts, almost in order, and has an introductory paragraph explaining that Many eons ago, a particle in the air called aurorium gave humans the ability to fly, which we lost when it all dissipated. But now a small amount of aurorium has been discovered in the basement of a schnook store. That has restored the ability to fly in some of the employees of the store who go up in the air for the caper in aisle six, as this edition of the circus is called. First, the Nemean sisters inhale some aurorium and then seem almost to float about the suspended ring on which they perform much the usual routines, but with unusual grace and beauty. My favorites are next, the St. Louis Arches, if they don't actually fly, they do have enough aurorium to stay in the air long enough for multiple backflips and close partner acrobatics. The flying wallendas are back on the high wire, keeping us breathless with their balance. The hog diggity dog performers don't look like Snook's employees. <laughs> well, the hogs could wind up in one department, nor do they fly, though the leaping dogs can come close. Trio Bellissimo, luxury shoppers at Snook's, luxury in their elegant hand balancing and lovely contortions. Master juggler Kellen follows intermission. I lost count of how many clubs he keeps in the air. They must have been honorarium. And he's careful to drop one club just to prove how difficult it is to do what he does. Caleb Ash, the daring horseman, leaps from horse to horse and through a ring of fire. Duo Ikaya soar as they bounce each other off the teeterboard. The flying royals, daring young women and men on the flying trapeze, ingest, I guess, the most aurorium. 
Clowns Matthew Morgan and Mookie Cornish filled the gaps between the acts. Unfortunately, much of their humor was verbal, and given the acoustic challenges of a tent, I missed a lot of it. Mookie did conjure a short musical comedy from audience volunteers. And Cecil McKinnon's Yo-Yo, the ringmaster clown, knows the problem and usually makes herself heard. She's also the theater director. Janine Delarte directs the music. She and Miriam Cutler composed it. Marjorie and Peter Spack designed the scenery. Nina Reed, the costumes, Jesse Alford, the lights, Marta Renzi choreographed, Jack Marsh is the company's artistic director. Another exciting evening at Circus Flora. It certainly was. The original Broadway production of The Boy from Oz began its previews in September 2003. When its leading man, Hugh Jackman, reached the end of his contract a year later, the show reached the end of its run. The Boy From Odds needs a charismatic star. It has one at stages St. Louis and David Elder, who headlines the show's rollicking Midwest premiere. The Boy From Oz is a jukebox musical about the life of Peter Allen, the singer-songwriter from Australia. The score is drawn from Allen's own songs, which are beautifully integrated into the action. Allen tells his own story, moving elegantly between the roles of narrator and participant in the book by Martin Sherman and Nick Enright. He was born Peter Richard Wilno in February 1944 in a small town in the Australian outback. His mother nurtured his love of performing. His troubled father did not. In 1959, he and another singer formed a brother act, the Allen Brothers, which gained a spot on the TV program Australian Bandstand. While the duo was on tour in Hong Kong, Judy Garland discovered them. Ellen was performing as her opening act when he met and fell in love with Garland's daughter, Liza Minnelli. Her career took off during their seven years of marriage. His did not. This difference in their success was one reason for the couple's estrangement. Another was Ellen's homosexuality. Ellen's career seemed dead after the divorce, but it rose from the ashes. Elders singing and dancing have infectious energy, and his acting ensures that Ellen is a character worth caring and learning about. Elder gets splendid support from the three women in his life. Michelle Raguse's Garland is not just an impersonation, but a genuine person. Corinne Melanson is the most supportive of mothers, especially in Act Two. Caitlin Coffel captures the essence of Liza Minnelli. There's fine work, too, from Eric Kaiser as the other Allen brother, Zach Trimmer as Allen's longtime partner, and Steve Isom as both Allen's father and his manager. Ben Eichen and Simon Desolitz alternate in the role of Peter as a boy. We saw Eichen, who fully conveys the early emergence of Allen's talent and passion for performing. The standards we expect from stages were upheld by Michael Hamilton's direction and musical staging, Dana Lewis's choreography, Lisa Campbell Albert's musical direction, James Wilkes' set, Brad Musgrove's costume, Sean M. Savoy's lighting, and Stuart M. Elmore's orchestral design. Opportunities to see the boy from Oz are rare. Don't let this one pass by. Yeah, it is an exciting show, as you say. It's it's in so many ways kind of a one-man show, and if you don't have a very strong performer in that role, and we did with, with David Elder, and I was very impressed with we saw Ben Eichen as his juniors and that takes quite a talent to match what is being done by the grown-up uh, Peter Allen so about uh, good music his songs let's hear some of them
can follow All Things Two on the Isle on Facebook by searching for Two on the Isle and liking the page. And you can be the first to see reviews on YouTube by subscribing to the Two on the Isle channel and checking the notification bell. Again, you can find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching for Two on the Isle. A dog played by a young woman creates much of the amusement in A.R. Gurney's Sylvia. Greg is a middle-aged man obviously going through a midlife crisis. He dislikes his job and his boss. His marriage is okay, but after 22 years, it's routine. On a break from the office, he goes to the park. He befriends a stray dog. She has a tag around her neck that says Sylvia and nothing else. She likes him, and he likes that, and her. He takes her home. His wife, Kate, a teacher, does not like Sylvia. With their children now grown and gone, she doesn't want to be burdened with anyone or anything to care for to cripple their social life and travels. But for Greg, it's too late. Sylvia feels a need. She gives him the attention and affection that he's missing. They bond. Sylvia knows how to manipulate Greg to keep him interested. She is, in a way, the younger woman a man in midlife crisis might have an affair with. But that is not what Greg needs. He still has the woman he needs and his wife, but the dog gives him something else. Though, as another dog owner he meets while taking Sylvia to the park explains, a wife might see the two in much the same way. And Kate does. She wants to get rid of Sylvia. When a friend comes to visit, all Kate can do is complain about Sylvia and Greg. Kate and Greg go for couples counseling. The counselor is also a troubled person, troubled even by Sylvia. When Kate gets a grant to study for six months in England where Sylvia would be quarantined, something has to give. And it does. Tim Nagelin makes Greg a really nice, confused guy who cannot see why he can't have both Sylvia and Kate or why Kate should be upset about it. And he always treats Sylvia like she's a dog. Kay loves Kate does, too, but in quite a different way. She doesn't like what this is doing to their marriage or to her. Melissa Harlow plays three characters. She's most convincing as Tom, the fellow dog owner in the park. She gets the gender uncertainty of the marriage counselor. She goes way over the top with the friend who visits. Susie Lawrence finds all the right moves to make Sylvia always a dog, even when she talks like a person. And she doesn't need the smudge of black makeup on her nose. Her devotion to Greg is total. She tries to win over Kate, fails, and determines to defeat her. Her string of profanity when she and Greg encounter a cat on a walk astounds Greg. So does her attraction to Tom's dog, Bowser. Sylvia is the key to the lights Gurney embeds in his play, and Lawrence unlocks them all. Miles Bledsoe's set smoothly changes from apartment to park with Tyler Duno's lights. Director Gary F. Bell also designed the costumes with amusing touches for Sylvia and for Harlow's three characters. I enjoyed seeing Sylvia again. The Coronation of Popeye was written centuries ago about events that took place many centuries ago, yet the opera by Claudio Monteverdi is gripping in the current staging at Opera Theatre of St. Louis. The translation by stage director Tim Albury is contemporary and clever. These qualities come through thanks to the clarity of the English diction coached by Ben Malincek. The action is exceptionally easy to follow with little need for reference to the projected titles. It helps that the conductor and harpsichordist Nicholas Koch achieves an ideal balance between the singers and the eight fine musicians on stage. Most importantly, Albury elicits performances from the entire cast that are as involving dramatically as they are musically. 
in a modern setting based on Italian cinema from the 1960s, Emily Fonz gives the title character a menacing lust for power and provokes irresistible lust in her paramour, the Emperor Nerone. Brenton Ryan gives Nerone a disturbing willfulness that leans toward mania. He reminds me of Jim Moriarty, the criminal mastermind in the BBC mystery Sherlock. Nerone's encounter with Popea on the long table is extraordinarily erotic. Everyone in the orbit of these two is brought to life vividly, especially the two most mature characters. David Pitzinger projects inspirational dignity as the Stoic philosopher Seneca, who was Nerone's most trusted advisor until Popea insisted otherwise. A striking contrast to Seneca's morality is the expediency of Popea's nurse, Arnalta, portrayed by Patricia Schumann. High praise is due also to Tom Scott Cowell as Atone, Sarah Mesco as the Empress, Devon Guthrie as Drusilla, Sidney Bedecky as Fortuna, Jennifer Aylmer as Virtu, Michaela Wolfe as Amore, Philippe L'Esperance and Matthew Cairns as Guards, and Jacob Imbar, Joseph McBrayer, and Griffin Hagen Tracy as familiars. Hannah Clark's costume designs establish a strong sense of period and style. Her evocative scenic design is harder to pin down. I admire the complexity that has made me think more than any other set I can recall. Christopher Akron's lighting, Tom Watson's wigs and makeup, and Sean Coran's choreography add to the fascination of this splendid production. Yeah, I, I agree, I don't get the set. But I'm so glad they did this because I'm not a great fan of the Baroque. I don't go for Baroque, but I do. Uh, I, I did, as you said, it's it's almost a play with music in the way it's done, and so the the music rarely rose to what you would call an aria, I would think. But uh, it worked well for what it was to do, and a fascinating story. So let's hear some of that music. Perfect weather, a classic musical, and a terrific performance made it an ideal Muni evening for the opening night of the 101st year in the park and for the introduction of the rebuilt stage. Director Gordon Greenberg, music director Brad Hack, and the entire cast brought the Guys and Dolls, created by Frank Lesser's Music and Lyrics and Joe Swirling and Abe Burroughs' book, to that 1950s Manhattan life captured by Damon Runyon and his stories that blossomed into a musical. Choreography by Lauren Lataro and Patrick O'Neill began during the overture and kept inventing great moves throughout. Paul Tate Depew the third scenery used the two new pixel screen stage right and left as well as the large screen upstage. But the crucial Broadway street scene with the hot box and the Save Us Old Mission in storefront side by side hung from one of the old booms. Tristan Rains put the soul savers in uniform, the gamblers in flashy wide lapels, the hot box dancers in as little as possible, and really 
really cut loose for the Havana numbers. Rob Denton polished the lights, John Shivers and David Patridge the sound, Nathan W. Scheuer the video, and Leah J. Lucas the wigs. Jarden Gelber nailed Nathan Detroit. Kendra Kassebaum got more out of Adelaide's Lament than I could have imagined, and she kept doing it with her Miss Adelaide. Ben Davis's smooth Sky Masterton got thrown for a loop by love, as did Brittany Bradford's sister Sarah Brown with her wonderful voice. She turned for comfort to the comforting Ken Page as her grandfather Arvide Abernathy. And I had to wonder what Page was thinking as Arville Mendoza soared with Page's Broadway triumph, Nicely Nicely Johnson's Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat. He had a great assist from Zoe Vonderhaar as General Cartwright. The grand old new Muni opened with not a weak spot in the cast of the production of Guys and Dolls. It was the Muni at its best. Yes, let's hear that wonderful music. Keep the party polite. Never get out of my sight. Never get out of my sight. Stick with me, baby. I'm the fella you came in with. Be a lady. Be a lady. Be a lady. Be a lady. If you're on Twitter and Instagram, you can find us there too. You can follow us on Twitter at Two on the Isle and be among the first to find out about our uploaded reviews to YouTube and any other special news that we have to announce. Plus, on Instagram, you can see some sneak peeks at the shows we've just gotten video for before the next episode when you follow us. Again, follow us on Twitter and Instagram by looking for Two on the Isle. A year ago, David Payne came to the Playhouse at Westport Plaza to present his one-man show, An Evening with C.S. Lewis. I reviewed it enthusiastically. Payne was back at the Westport last week with another show in which he portrays Lewis, this one is a two-hander entitled Lewis and Tolkien of Wardrobes and Rings. The subtitle refers to the two works of fantasy for which Lewis and his friend J.R.R. Tolkien are best known. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings and Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the first volume of which is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The two scholars became friends at Oxford through their shared passion for Norse mythology. Later, Tolkien was instrumental in the reemergence of Lewis's Christian faith. As a part of a group called the Inklings, they shared their work in progress with each other in meetings at a pub named the Eagle and Child, but familiarly known as the Bird and Baby. Lewis actively supported what would become the Lord of the Rings. Tolkien was uninterested in the Narnia stories. A rift grew up between the two men over the years, in large part because of Lewis's marriage. Tolkien was not told about it when it happened, and as a devout Roman Catholic, he objected to Lewis's marrying a divorced woman. The premise of Lewis and Tolkien is that Tolkien is arranged to meet Lewis at the Burden Baby to end the estrangement before it is too late. Lewis is in poor health after a heart attack. It takes a while for the men to get to their differences, and when they do, there is less to say about the marriage than in Payne's one-man show about Lewis, where the story of his marriage is gripping. I found the dialogue and Lewis and Tolkien engaging, but without much drama. I was glad to hear Tolkien explain his reservations about the Narnia books and discuss his theory of fantasy. In general, however, Tolkien emerges with less gravitas in the play than Lewis does. I think Gregory William Welsh's amiable portrayal of Tolkien accurately reflects the script in this respect. Payne tailored it to Lewis's strengths and his own. 
<laughs> yes, good point in that. But yeah, I enjoyed listening to them. But uh, as you say, maybe not as as uh, dramatically compelling as uh, Lewis alone. And that show really was compelling. Yeah. Does a connection exist between artistic ability and mental illness? Robert Schumann, Vincent van Gogh, Tennessee Williams are among the more prominent artists who spent time under psychiatric care. Thelonious Monk, the great jazz pianist and composer, one of the founders of bebop and a major influence on musicians from the mid 20th century on, was another. Mariah Richardson has written a play about him. Monk had periods of feverish work, both composing and playing music, and making attempts to explain in words what he was doing, followed by periods of depression and silence. It's not easy to write a play about such a man. Richardson takes a chronological approach, beginning with his early development as house pianist at Minton's Playhouse in Harlem in the 1940s, where he learned a lot sitting in with leading jazz musicians. Richardson highlights Monk's eventual recognition and his increasing mental problems. She, director Fanny Bell-Levy and music director Dwayne Bosman, assembled an impressive cast to explore this difficult material, led by Philip Graves as Monk. Graves is not only a highly accomplished pianist, he mastered Monk's quirks in performance, the moments when a policeman would find him sitting on the street unresponsive and take him to the mental ward at Bellevue, where he would plead with his wife and his agent and his doctor to get him out of this place he hated and back to his piano. Rachel Simone Mitchell made distinct three women, Monk's mother Barbara and early girlfriend Ruby, and his wife Nellie. Eliana Steele played the Baroness Pananica Nika de Kenningswater, a Rothschild and a patroness of several leading players of the jazz that fascinated her. She remained close to Monk the rest of his life. Jason J. Little doubled as jazz musicians and close friends of Monk, the pianist Bud Powell and Billy Taylor. Colin McLaughlin played Monk's agent and his doctor in the mental ward. Daryl Mixon on bass and Steve Tatum on drums accompanied Graves Monk. Panchita Argyard managed costumes and props. Next to normal, the Thelonious Monk story ran only two nights at Jazz St. Louis, a co-production of Jazz St. Louis and a Call to Conscience Interactive Theater for Social Change. I hope it has more exposure, uh, perhaps with a less confusing name. <laughs> yes, indeed, I agree completely. Well, let's hear some Monk music. <laughs> the opening scene of Shannon Geyer's Fat, Amy and Joel are giddy about their engagement, but he becomes concerned when she wants a snack just after they have eaten a full meal. She objects to his concern. This conflict over Amy's eating plays itself out again and again in scenes covering two decades. Laura Deveni as Amy and Dan Stockton as Joel turned in convincing performances in the recent production of Fat by Because Why Not Theater Company. The prejudice in our society against overweight people is denounced with passion by Amy and her friends, played by Ashley Netzhammer, Stephanie Rhine, Robin Harters, and Bassman. The script does not, however, skate over the actual difficulties Amy's weight causes for her health, her marriage, and her daughter Tara, played persuasively by Bethany Miss Cannon. Tara takes out a resentment on an overweight classmate named Jessa, whose testimony in court about the bullying is deeply moving in Laurel Button's portrayal. Eventually, Tara develops an eating disorder of her own. 
There's good work in additional scenes, both serious and comic, by Blessed New, Rob Wood, Jacqueline Amber, and Jody Stockton. Elaine M. Laws directed, Sidney Forgetch designed the lighting. The sympathies of this script are wide, its objects of satire are narrow, ignorance and intolerance. No easy answers emerge from the play about the difficult relationship some people have with food. I do, however, appreciate the hard-won conclusion offering hope that eating disorders and long-standing resentments can both be overcome. Yeah, uh, it was good, although I still, I wish I'd, uh, there was more information about this accident that brought about the ending, uh, but uh, that confused me considerably. But, uh, you know, nicely, nice, otherwise not good treatment of the subject. Yes. Let's take a look at what's going on in St. Louis Theater for the next couple of weeks in June and July of 2019. Let's start with the dinner theaters. The Dinner Detective at Hilton St. Louis Frontenac Murder Mystery Dinner Show still runs through July 27th. Murder in Mayberry at the Lemp Mansion Comedy Mystery Dinner Theater runs through July 17th. And Flaming Saddles at the Bissell Mansion Murder Mystery Dinner Theater runs through July 28th. The Marriage of Figaro will be at Opera Theater of St. Louis through June 29th. Be More Chill at New Line Theater through June 22nd. Love's Labor's Lost will be in Forest Park at Shakespeare Festival St. Louis through June 23rd. The Boy from Oz will be at Stages St. Louis through June 30th. Rigoletto will be at Opera Theater of St. Louis through the end of June on June 30th. Sylvia will be playing at Stray Dog Theater through June 22nd. The Caper in Isle 6 will be in Grand Center at Circus Flora through June 30th. Travels with My Aunt will be presented by Act Inc. St. Charles through June 23rd. Also at Opera Theater of St. Louis, the Coronation of Popea will run through June 28th. And also at Act Inc. in St. Charles will be Leaving Iowa. That runs through June 22nd. Fire Shut Up in My Bones will be at Opera Theater of St. Louis through June 29th. Disney's 101 Dalmatians will be at Stage of St. Louis through June 30th. The Muni out in Forest Park will host Kinky Boots running through June 25th. Indecent will be performed by Max and Louis Productions through June 30th. An amazing story, German abolitionists of Missouri will be put on by Katana Productions through June 23rd. Hedwig and the Angry Itch is put on by the Q Collective in The Grove through June 29th. Singing in the Rain will be in Lebanon, Illinois at Looking Glass Playhouse through June 23rd. As You Like It at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville, it runs from June 21st through the 30th. Recipes for Ice at Kirkwood Theater Guild on June 21st. A Taste of New York plays at Mariposa Artists on June 22nd. Center Stage at Opera Theater of St. Louis on June 25th. The play 1776 plays at the Muni in Forest Park from June 27th through July 3rd. The Revolutionist plays at Insight Theater Company from June 28th through July 14th. The Selfish Giant plays at Christ Memorial Productions on June 28th through the 30th. And Grand Center Theater Crawl takes place in Grand Center on June 28th and June 29th. We'll be watching some of these productions from our two seats on the aisle. And we'll be watching the mail and the email for your thoughts on theater in this program and for items for the calendar. Send them to Two on the Aisle, HEC Media, 3221 McKelvey Road, Bridgeton, Missouri, 63044, or by email to TOTA at HECTV.org. Join us next time on Cable and the Web for lots of musicals and unusual plays. We'll see you then. This episode of Two on the Isle was produced by Bob Wilcox, and the associate producer was Jerry Kowarski. 
HEC media producer is Paul Langdon. Our hosts this week were Jerry Kowarski and Bob Wilcox. Television director is Rick Rebelke. Segment editors and videography by Kerry Marks, Paul Langdon, Ben Smith, and Rod Milam. Audios by Paul Langdon. Associate producers and studio camera operators were Kerry Marks and Ben Smith. Set and lighting were by Paul Langdon, Kerry Marks, and Ben Smith. Our theme music was by Daniel McGowan. HEC technical support is by Jane Ballou. And HEC media assistant producer, social media broadcaster, podcast producer, and podcast host is Rod Milam. Two on the Isle was made possible with the support from the Regional Arts Commission of St. Louis. Don't forget you can find all things Two on the Isle online on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Just go to each social media platform, search for Two on the Isle, and like, subscribe, and follow us there. Thanks for downloading the Two on the Isle podcast. We'll see you next time. This is an HEC Media Podcast.